Hey everyone, you're listening to the 10-7 podcast where we get together every fortnight and sometimes more often to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. My guest today is Hans Bjordal, who is the CEO and founder of Culture Foundry, a full-service, one-stop provider for all things digital in Seattle, Washington. He is also the host of The Decision, a podcast about conscious capitalism, and he also created one of the very first online comic strips that appeared on Usenet in 1991. I was lucky enough to meet Hans at Owner Camp in Bend last April. Hans, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ivan. Glad to join. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So as I said in the opening, you're CEO and founder of Culture Foundry, and you've been doing that since about 2010. But I kind of want to go back to where life started for you and hear about how you got to Culture Foundry. So where did you grow up? So I grew up in Hawaii. I grew up on Maui and um, was actually born in Honolulu uh, and can produce a birth certificate on request. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. It's not required for this podcast. Okay, that's good. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, went there through, uh, grew up there through high school and then uh, came to the mainland, as we call it, in Hawaii uh, for college and have been here ever since. How often do you go back there? Uh, usually once or twice a year. I uh, have friends there, have family there. Uh, you know, in the winter, I'm in Seattle. So in the winter, I'm more likely to find a reason to go than in the summer. Uh, it's a better trade, uh, but always good to get back home. So, and home is in Maui or in Honolulu yep. where you were born? In Maui. In Maui. Okay. Yep. Um, and so that actually makes sense why you went to this, pl this prep school in Hawaii called Seabury Hall. Mm -hmm. yep. It's, it sounds like a, like a Hogwarts almost. You know, it's pretty close. Uh, you know, it's, uh, my mom taught English at Seabury Hall. And so, uh, my brother and I got to go for free as part of that arrangement when you teach there. And so, um, it was uh, a, as close to an idyllic high school experience as you can get. Uh, the joke is that if you need to find directions to it, you just look for the rainbow that uh, ends at Makawao Maui, and you just go there, and there's Seabury. And of course, uh, when I was in high school, I appreciated none of that. Right. Uh, I was just, you know, a usual disgruntled 16-year-old. Uh, <laughs> but in retrospect, when I compare... When I compare uh, my high school experience to other people, um, you know, the uh, uh, it, it's definitely clear that I, I had a great one. When I uh, when I showed my wife where I went to high school, uh, she had two words. Her words were "f you." Right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so quite an yeah. idyllic place. That's lovely yeah. to hear. So, your last name is Bjordal, which is very Scandinavian, and we mm -hmm. usually find Scandinavian here in the Midwest, in the Upper Midwest, in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. How how does Scandinavian uh, land so far west in so, in Hawaii? Well, we are a seafaring people, yes. uh, so that's part of it, and uh, that's I was actually a grain of truth that my dad was in the navy and grew up in around Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, and my mom uh, grew up in Michigan. And so, you know, upper Midwest uh, you know, lineage there, 
and so when my dad was stationed at uh, on Oahu for the Navy, and after um, getting his uh, medical degree and deciding where to start a practice, uh, realized that he could live in Hawaii, that there's no law. That Why you not? Can't. Why yeah. not? Why wouldn't I do that, having yeah. had such a great experience there? Uh, in the Navy. And so he started his practice on Maui and my mom, you know, became an English teacher, uh, put her English degree to use uh, doing that at Seabury. And that's how, that's how Hawaii came to be uh, from roots in the upper Midwest. What a great story. And so uh, the English teacher, the English influence in your life must have been quite strong because you went on to get a degree in journalism in mm-hmm. Colorado. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you, and you've been a, quite a prolific content creator since then. I mean, a writing for the Denver Post and the Boulder Weekly, you produced some comics. Something uh, that I'd love to talk about is, as Wikipedia says, uh, you're, you're one of the people who produced the first web comic called Where the Buffalo Roam that went out mm-hmm. on Usenet. How, how did that all start? You know, it's uh, I'm at the University of Colorado uh, pursuing a journalism degree because, you know, I'm thinking journalism. There's no way this career won't pay huge financial dividends in the future. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Exactly. News industry looks rock solid and will be a thriving business for decades to come. Right. Moving on to plan B, uh, I joined a... Um, early dot com called Exor and had been running this comic strip called Where the Buffalo Roam in the local Colorado paper, the local student paper called the Colorado Daily. And it was quite popular in that forum. But as part of my introduction to the folks at this early uh, Colorado dot com, they knew of me through my comic strip. And, you know, the introduction was, hey, we'd love to put your comic on the Internet. And I'm like, the what now? (laughs) <laughs> and was introduced to Usenet and then by extension Alternet. And, you know, they would post it. It would get digitized. You had to wait four minutes or something for the binary file to download, to even view it. And, you know, then I would come in once a week and answer mail uh, from all over the world. You know, you get mail from Australia. And, you know, this is in the early, early days, right? Early 90s when that was really novel yeah. and really cool. And I'm like, hmm, I think this internet thing has potential. Just a hunch. And then <laughs> when, you know, uh, these folks at XOR said, hey, we want to start a creative department at our a web engineering firm, I jumped at the chance, and that was my first foray into the internet. And successful it has been thus far as well. Multi-adventured, you know, it's, (laughs) you know, just a lot of, a lot of things where, wow, I was there for that, right? Early .com experience at this company did the whole first Whole Foods e-commerce website back oh, wow. when we were just making that stuff up, you know, back before Shopify and PayPal and things like that. And, you know, figuring out credit card gateways uh, at the very beginning, you know, worked with some really great clients um, there, you know, including Franklin Covey and Hyatt. And we were just a small five-person firm but we were we were giant slayers, right? We would go up against established agencies and just walk away with Whole Foods in our bag, and you know then it grew to 500 people, and then was sold, uh, and then the culture, 
was culture change not just eroded inverted right blown up and in that explosion people were flung far and wide uh, across the country and the company is no more but m- many lessons learned not just about the internet but about what i might do one day if i were to start a company and so you know that dna from that first formative 5 year experience really plays a played a heavy role in culture foundries it stands today someone at owner camp said to me that they like to quote unquote discover things in the ashes of a failed project yeah yep i think you said that to me so what what do you think what do you think you discovered from that blow up at that 500 person company that it's all about the culture and that when you know this sounds <laughs> this sounds really obvious it's obvious in how i phrase it but when you seed control you seed control and it was the first experience i had had of watching something of value get built and then you know won't mince words and then destroyed and you watching it be destroyed was kind of you're like why are you doing this and you know why it was being destroyed is just the investors had a different value system than the people who ultimately sold it and you know as in many of these things the conversation early on is all good and everyone's aglow with the new opportunities that an acquisition will uh, enable or an investment that's effectively an acquisition XOR, the company I worked at, was then rolled up into four-ish other like firms. The idea was to bring it all together, go for an IPO, everyone will get fabulously rich. Well, then the tech crash hit. But even before the tech crash hit, we switched from a culture that I would describe, this is Boulder, Colorado, right, as barefoot Boulder programmer, very, you know, very friendly, very flexible, very learning-oriented, of, you know, very values-driven and, you know, when the investors came in, it turned into much more of a financial imperative and everything else was secondary. Um, you know, and then I was also really exposed to, uh, you know, what I would call conventional wisdom about how business should be done. The narrative was, you're cute, little company, but we are the grownups and we're going to come in and tell you how to do business right because you're doing it wrong. And the way to do business right is manage to the exit, manage to the quarter, treat people as commodities. Um, you know, don't get too sentimental about your team. Don't get too sentimental about your culture. And, you know, this is back in the 90s when I think that that idea that that's how business should be done was largely unchallenged. That's what got you on the cover of magazines. Uh, I think that's shifting, and we'll talk about that for sure. Uh, But then that was a stark example of how that didn't work and how I think even the investors, when it all the ashes were among us, were like, what happened there? Uh, I don't think they knew either. Uh, And so, you know, for me, it was a very formative time, not just to learn about the internet, but to learn about how, how to grow a business. And the things you touched on, uh, like culture and seating control, um, they make me think of what I wanted to talk to you a little bit uh, more about was this idea of conscious capitalism and the mm-hmm. four tenets that exist. But before we get into that, let's, um, 
So we've talked about it before. You've mentioned it. We've had nice discussions about it. But for the listeners out there, can you give us a definition of what conscious capitalism actually is? So conscious capitalism is a model that uh, seeks to unlock the potential for social good and humanistic good in business and not just do that as a feel good let's have you know a, let's have a you know let's have a corporate giving program when we're done counting our money but baking that concept right into the core of your company and doing it in a structured way that actually yields better financial results at the end of the day and that when I was first exposed to this system, I was at South by Southwest. Uh, John Mackey, who is one of the founders of this organization and early champions and ongoing champion, uh, was giving a talk about a book he wrote called Conscious Capitalism. And I'm like, this is interesting. It's a fairly aggressive assertion that the way we've been doing business in this country is wrong and that we need to evolve it to you know, fit this different and, frankly, more difficult model of how business should work, that it's not just profit and loss, that it's things about core purpose and things about stakeholder orientation, conscious culture, conscious leadership, that these things can be defined, that they can be to some degree quantified, and that they can, through research, be shown to return not just incremental better return on investment, but exponential better return on investment. And, you know, the research around it, I think, is still emerging, still evolving. The ideas, um, you know, have really caught fire because the hunger for this in business is acute, right? And everywhere I come across it, uh, people who feel they have to take, they have to have one person at home and bring a different person to work that they can't integrate who they are with what they do, that's a fundamentally unhealthy place to be. And creating business environments where you can bring your entire genuine self to work and do that, hopefully, where there's some social good that comes out of that, that's a very compelling thing. And that idea has been around a long time, but it hasn't been super structured. Now it's getting more structured, and it's getting more structured through conscious capitalism, through B corporations, uh, through you know, some of the work that Nick Hanauer is doing. He's a Seattle billionaire who's making a very aggressive run at redefining what successful economics look like. So a lot of people are approaching this idea from slightly different directions. Conscious capitalism was my introduction into that, that approach to business. And, you know, some of those tenets from the book, I picked up directly and, and plugged them right into Culture Foundry. And so it's, um, it's been very useful to us in terms of how we want Culture Foundry to be. But I also think there's an imperative worldwide. I won't even stop at the, um, you know, at the borders of the U.S., but worldwide to really think about business in this way and very aggressively counter the traditional model that you only have an obligation to your shareholders and everyone else can take a hike, right? Every, everything else is a commodity. Uh, this model is a broader stakeholder model where you need to accommodate clients, employees, partners, environment, community, and 
shareholders. But this is, you know, we're going to slice this pie up many different ways, not just give everything to the shareholders and leave everyone else holding the bag. So it's really being a good citizen of the planet and the universe, not just as a person, but as an organization. Everything you touch, you should be thinking about its purpose and the effect on the environment. Yep. And that, you know, and in the broadest possible definition of the word right. environment. And yeah. And baking that into the leadership suite and baking that into your core purpose as a company and baking that into your strategic planning and then holding yourself accountable. Because I think failure is a necessary part of the narrative of conscious capitalism. That You know, it sounds great, but it's hard, right? It's, it's really tricky, right? Are you really going to go back to your shareholders and say, I'm taking money out of your pocket so that I can build this factory in the right way, not the wrong way? Um, oh, everyone's, yes, you should do that. Right. But we, there are many tales where people have taken these, uh, taken these principles into broader business communities and encountered significant resistance, um, put themselves at risk, you know, like, Hey, you know, made themselves a firing target, right? This is not without risk. It's, it's a fascinating model, and having come out of a couple experiences, you know, this, this experience at this first.com, where how I felt and it felt, right, just felt right that business be done one way, um, and running into this, this sense that I was naive and stupid, and we were all naive and stupid for thinking that way, and that one day we would grow up and do business the right way, you know, finding some evidence that that model is due for an evolution, if not an outright revolution, you know, was really, um, energizing, right? It was like, wow, how can we, how can we make that happen? Right. How can I make that in my own little corner of the world for those little things that I have some degree of control over? Um, and so that's been something that, you know, we come back to it frequently at Culture Foundry, uh, because, you know, there's always places where, that idea runs into the friction of how things are usually done and reconciling that and being prepared to fail along the way is part of that whole journey. So you mentioned John Mackey earlier, and for those, for those listeners who aren't quite familiar with that name, he is the CEO of Whole Foods. Yeah. Yeah. I think he may be retired emeritus co-CEO. I mean, he certainly, the, he certainly, it's, Whole Foods is certainly built on his image, so to speak, though, right? Yeah. So I'm trying to reconcile the idea of everything he's written for conscious capitalism and Whole Foods, which makes a perfect sense. But when you then marry that with the fact that Amazon bought Whole Foods and that Whole Foods is now part of Amazon, and you think about the culture at Amazon that... I mean, I'm not going to mince words, but I'd say yeah. cutthroat, right? Yeah. You know, win, win, win is yep. another one. How do, how do those two go together? I don't know. That is a great question, right? And that has not been lost on people in the conscious capitalism movement, right? That Amazon is not a poster child for conscious capitalism by any stretch. And Whole Foods in its heyday ran into its own levels of static over labor. Uh, You know, John Mackey 
advance these ideas around conscious capitalism. You know, I would personally describe John Mackey as a libertarian personality at his core, right? And perhaps he and Bezos found some common, you know, resonance around that. Uh, and so in the conscious capitalism communities I've been part of, these discussions about, well, you know, even before the Amazon purchase, Whole Foods, yeah, but, right? You know, yeah, but there's, you know, they've had some issues with unions and, you know, they've they've been a much better company than average, but they're not perfect. And, you know, for us in the conscious capitalism movement and you know I was involved in the Seattle chapter which had a had a great run um but you know is no longer active you know because you know largely because our our team of volunteers ran out of gas which happens and because you know the chapter model is evolving in a way that we're you know hey we want to probably try different stuff rather than follow that model but these have been really interesting discussions with that team and kind of where we landed is that any movement that is overly attached to an individual or a company is is destined for trouble one day because people have their own paths, have their own, you know, from each other's point of view, right? Strengths and weaknesses, uh, champion moments and fallible moments. Um, you know, who am I to judge about whatever, you know, decisions John Mackey may have made along the way, whatever, whatever, beware, beware the guru, right? Beware the charismatic, I think is one of the broader lessons I've taken away. Anytime you attach a movement to a person, you're going to be disappointed eventually. Um, just, just, it's just inevitable. Uh, just what it is. the ideas around conscious capitalism though are, are enduring, right? And taking those ideas forward, whether it's under that banner, a B corporation banner, you know, some of these other organizations banner or just your place in a decision and maker's role, right? Even in a larger company, uh, even let's say at Amazon to say, hey, maybe we should think about it this way, right? This decision is going to completely decimate this tier of suppliers. What are, are we going to have consideration around that? Um, Amazon, I actually feel is one of the more important swing votes in this whole movement going forward, that their history and reputation has been, you know, win, 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 has been on many occasions, not even acknowledging this conversation, much less not even going so far as to play a counterweight to it, right? Just kind of la la la. I'm not hearing you. I can't hear you. Yeah. As a large company, there's some great things they've done. They've you know they've done some you know initiatives in Seattle that are positive, and some initiatives in Seattle that you know are negative, right? They were in the news for combating. Uh, I think it was an employment head tax, and you know got a lot of blowback from that. But they've also done some good you know, direct contribution work in homeless communities, like anything, there's many facets to that company. As it, get, as it gets bigger, there's going to be ever more facets. But at its core, right, the question of whether Amazon is a force for good is a question that I think should be asked, is a question that I don't think is yet answered, and is a question, and the people best equipped to ask that question are people inside the company every day, right? And that may make you unpopular, but 
I think we're at a place in tech where being willing to have that uncomfortable conversation about we're building all these amazing tools, how are they being used? Are they being used for good? Do we have ethical and moral boundaries around how these tools or these systems are, you know, they're at Amazon, they're ever improving? But ever improving to what end, right? Is efficiency the highest goal for humanity to 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 reach for, right? Or is there something beyond that? Being in those rooms, you know, being the one that brings that up, even if you're the one, maybe you just killed the conversation by bringing it up. You know, I think more and more people are getting bolder with that. We're seeing at large tech companies, people willing to go to bring these issues up with management en masse. Uh, you know, there's been, a, uh, you know, many examples lately of, you know, employees at Google, Amazon, Microsoft. I think Amazon just had an investor and employee driven initiative to get, I, I could be wrong about the details here, to get, you know, acknowledgement and concern around, I think it was global warming, you know, as, as part of the company's charter. It didn't pass. The conversation got put on the table, the you know, let's see what the next chapter brings there, because I think there's this real ground up uh, groundswell uh, within these companies to start to challenge their own leadership to think in these ways. And, you know, I also think even outside of tech, you're seeing a lot of examples where companies that that do articulate a values driven story can back it up with action, can back it up with humility and fallibility are really gaining traction. People are are running to these brands. And I think that that is a glimpse of business of the future, is the problems that we have to confront or become ever more stark, right? And become ever harder to avoid. If you don't, if you don't have a position on whether you're a force for good, I think eventually you're going to be in trouble. Uh, you know, and we could take in tech, you know, like what's, what's, what's an example of how not to do that? Facebook, right? Right. You know, we've seen them in the, in the crosshairs of, of utter indifference for whether, um, you know, in in practice, right. Not in what's said, but in practice of whether that platform's a force for good or not really bad executive reactions when challenged to that, that are bluntly utterly lacking in humility. And, you know, and it's, it's kind of stands as a case of what not to do. And then there's a spectrum, right? I think we've had organizations that have been more, uh, been more credible, right? I think, I think Apple's done a pretty good job, right. Of, of showing it's taking these kinds of things seriously as a large company. I'm sure there's many things it's not doing well. Microsoft today is quite different from the Microsoft of, 15 years ago, right? A oh, Microsoft. so different. Yeah, yeah. I, a Microsoft I worked at, right? Um, you know, and I think uh, they're seeing the light here and trying to move things in, a big, in a, the right direction, but these are tremendously large ships and they're hard to turn. They really are. Uh, so, I mean, the battle, you know, the battle is on, right? And I think, um, you know, I think what we do at work every day is 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 just uh is actually is crucial is crucially important uh to what direction things go and um you know we're talking about these massive companies and our own modest digital agency right what difference can we make we we can make we can make a difference in our little you know our little piece of land shall we say right you know and um you know that's all we can really 
effectively do, but hopefully we can like socialize these ideas and get other people to jump on board them as well. Yeah, it's in, and it's important to talk about them in podcasts like this and in, mm-hmm. in meetings that you have in any public space. It's important to blog about it. Um, and I think ultimately these large companies are all made of people. Yep. And when those people are identifying what the issues are and are speaking up, then that's when that kind of change can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You literally have the word culture in the name of the agency. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no culture mistake. Culture Foundry. No. What? what um, tell me about that. Why, why, is, why is it named Culture Foundry? And how does it drive your everyday existence? Uh, so there's, you know, it, it came to be named that way for a couple different reasons. One, and is that culture, culture is the headwaters of everything, right? Getting to the core... Are we technology? Are we design foundry? Are we tech foundry? Are we media foundry? Uh, culture, what are the, what's the thing from which all that stuff flows? And our belief in founding the company, Trevor Dodd and myself co-founded the company uh, in 2010, uh, is that culture is the headwaters from which everything else flows. So we really wanted culture in the name. Um, Also, I'd had uh, a company running some media projects called Shadow Culture. Trevor had had a freelance, uh, thriving freelance business called Food Culture. So we're like, wow, we both bring companies with culture in the name to the table. So it's going to have culture in it. But it also speaks to our alignment as co-founders. And, you know, so that's that's from where it all, all springs, right? Tech, changes over time. Um, media standard media changes over time. Uh, design changes over time, but culture, right? What are, what are the, what are the common threads that bind people together to do one thing as opposed to another, to act in a certain way as opposed to another that's culture and making that at the core of our business was important to us. When we go talk to clients, we try as fast as we can to get to the core of that for their, their business. Uh, you know, it's like, Oh, you're building me a, a WordPress site. Why are we talking about my core purpose as a company? Because we strongly believe we need to understand your core purpose as a company to build you the best possible WordPress site. And so it's, um, you know, that's the orientation we bring to the table when we talk to clients. And when it resonates, it really resonates, right? We get a lot of feedback that, oh, wow, we, you know, we've talked to, you know, other firms and we don't have these conversations at all, right? It's, uh, we had one client, we went in and had this discussion and they're very aligned and very successful and entrepreneurial and energetic. And, you know, they said by the time, and I wasn't in the room for this, right? This was, um, you know, uh, other members of our team, but, you know, the feedback we got was that Culture Foundry, like what you did today with guiding how we're going to do this roadmap, you have really captured the soul of who we are. And we're like, that's what we came here to do. Uh, and you know, we don't do it. We're not a consultancy that focuses on it exclusively by any stretch, but because the foundry 
represents delivery, uh, not just whiteboard work, not just, you know, here's what you should do, consulting type deliverables. But if you actually need a working product, a working website out of that, that's the foundry piece to make it concrete, right? To make, we're getting our hands dirty once we figured out where we're going. So that's the yin and the yang of the name. And so um, coming out of that session with that particular client, you know, that's what we aim to do. And when it works, it works really well. What do you love about what you do? You know, I love having agency, I would say, personally. Uh, and, you know, not an agency in terms of a digital agency, but that, that's an important word. And that means freedom to choose direction, priorities, who you work with, who you won't work with, what you what clients you'll take, which you'll champion. You know, I came here to this place, uh, starting Culture Foundry in 2010, you know, after some great working experiences and some really challenging working experiences where that frankly were rooted in, I had a different idea of how business should run. And I had a different definition of success than the organization I was in. And those are not necessarily super reconcilable, right? When the, with the difference is that, that broad and coming to culture foundry and giving, having the opportunity working with Trevor on this company to say, here's how we think it should be done. Here's how we've always thought it should be done. Let's see if this works and being able to make those decisions along the way and not have to run into static from quote unquote upstairs has been completely, <laughs> completely energizing, uh, to the point of, of, uh, you know, maybe intoxicating is a strong word, but I'm fairly <laughs> ruined. I'm fairly ruined for going back to, you know, anything with a whiff of corporate life attached to it in terms of my day-to-day existence. And then things about, you know, part of that agency is finding people who are looking for something similar. Um, you know, they're, you know, we're not hiring new co-founders necessarily, but our respect for the freedom of talented individuals to structure their lives as they see fit, as long as they can deliver, um, you know, uh, you know, when all is said and done, that level of extreme freedom is something that, we really cherish and that people who join us really cherish. It's becoming more broadly accepted, I think, in the world of work that, oh, wow, working from home, like that's, you know, here's a good example, right? You know, you go to, you know, Amazon, for example, right? You know, is, is you know, I think I heard a tale. It's like, oh, yeah, we fully support and they're different division by division, right? I don't want to beat up on them. But, you know, I think I, I hear this story. I heard this story. I'm in Seattle. So I hear a good amount of Amazon stories, Microsoft stories, what have you. You know, oh, work from home. Yeah, we're all about work from home. Yeah, we're, we're full supporters of that. In fact, you can work from home every other Friday, right? And it's sort of like, well, well. when we go talk, <laughs> to, you know, so a couple of things, right? We're like, we are a work from home first oriented company where, uh, you know, we have an employee working from Oslo this week who was working from Tokyo two months ago. Uh, and, you know, the office is there as a convenience for you. If you can focus better there, there's a client meeting to have there, but you don't need a reason to work from home. You need a reason to go to the office or you don't. Right. But we don't, you know, that, that dimension of how we, um, approach the world of work, uh, 
is something that's important to us because it has this fundamental respect for the individual to have a level of self-determination over their own life, right? This old thing of a, of, of a work bucket and a home bucket and you rush in a commute from one to the other and you got to get all your doctor's appointments and, you know, do with, deal with family stuff, uh, you know, in this sort of tight time window and then you go to a work window and nothing shall cross that boundary. This is an antiquated notion at this point. Yeah. I agree. And not, yeah, absolutely. Oh, and, uh, 10-7 follows much of a similar philosophy as I understand it. Absolutely. And yeah. I think, I think what you were describing the work bucket and the home bucket, uh, and I think that's why people refer to it as, as a work home balance. Mm-hmm. And when you think about them as an integrated thing where you can work and be so self-deterministic and choose what to do, where you want to do it and when you want to do it, then I think it makes more sense to, to talk about it as a work home focus Yep. What are you focusing on at the time? It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you're putting your computer down. It's It, it just matters that you're being effective in the thing that you're doing. And so I feel like that um, distinction between focus and balance is important. And I think you brought it up in a very kind of um, kind of round, round the way um, way that you talked about, you know, focusing on work and home buckets but yeah you're right 10 is also fully distributed and it's been a wonderful experience um since we started doing this in 2017 it really has and you know when you i think a lot of companies are like oh yeah oh yeah we're on board with that uh, until they're tested right and sometimes the the failure is you know and it's harder at large companies because there's more entropy there uh the, the failure is one of entropy. It's not even out of any sort of desire to to say one thing and do another, but it takes a while to turn larger ships around to that idea. And I think, you know, there's even smaller companies for whom that idea is like, wait, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't people, isn't that, wouldn't people that work from home just laze around all day, right? It's, that's not the new model, right? I think the trust in your employees, uh, your team members is, is crucial to making that crucial. work. Crucial. And, you know, I think back to, you know, some of my experiences and, you know, I think we all in a way cry, try to create the company we would also love to work at. And, you know, Hey, I have to go do this family thing. You know, maybe it's a wedding, maybe it's a funeral or, you know, maybe, Hey, I need to take two days off for, just get recalibrated and do some personal stuff. I have to ask permission to go to my, you know, to go to a family funeral and permission is always granted, but there's still this notion of asking for it. And really my vacation days are counted out like gold stars in a kindergarten class. I thought we hired smart people here. Uh, That's, that's, uh, that's baffling to me that that's how that's done. Right. The, the, the metric for keeping that, in balance from our perspective is don't leave your team out in the cold over communicate about when you'll be out. Um, but for these things like, Hey, I'm going to go work from Oslo for a week. You barely have to ask permission. You just have to communicate what your core hours are going to be. Exactly. Exactly. And, and other small things as well. Like I need to take my truck to the dealership. Yeah. All the dealership has Wi-Fi. I'm just going to take it and work at the dealership. Like what's the, it's a big deal, yeah. right? It's, and I think the secret, you know, the, the business secret here is flexibility is effectively free to offer 
It's a matter of granting trust to your team. And it's a powerful advantage over in competitive hiring situations. So we are is. very adept at, 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 at hiring against larger companies that pay significantly better salaries than we do because it's obvious to candidates that when we talk about what their life is going to be like here, we mean it, that it's the, ac- it's the actual reality of life at Culture Foundry. I want a job at Culture Foundry now. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, well, hey, we, we, we'd welcome you in a second. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, was, I was looking at your bio on the Culture Foundry website, and uh, something that struck me was a very short phrase, aloha, as a guiding principle. Mm-hmm. And, when, and when you think of that word, um, you usually think about it just meaning hello and goodbye. But it's actually much more than that. And um, I wanted to ask you about that as we wrap up the, the podcast episode here. So t- tell me about what it means to you. What does that aloha as a guiding principle actually mean? It goes really deep, and so and it, it can be missed on a, on a on a trip to Hawaii where it means hello and goodbye. And as you mentioned, Yvonne, right, it goes deeper than that. Mm-hmm. It really, if I were to translate aloha, it is a sense of universal welcoming and oneness. And aloha is actually Hawaii state law. Of a couple what? decades ago, it is Hawaii state law. A couple wow. decades ago, there was an envoy from China who flew to Honolulu to meet with the governor, discovered along the way that the governor had met with the Dalai Lama a couple months before, and the envoy from China was like, we are diplomatically offended by that, so I am not going to get off this plane and meet with the governor after all, right? Uh, and it's standoff time. An aide to the governor uh, conveyed to the Chinese that uh, the Chinese envoy and the aid that aloha, a sense of universal oneness and welcoming, is state law, and therefore the governor is bound to meet the Chinese envoy in that spirit. When this was explained to uh, the, the Chinese diplomatic team, the meeting happened, and gifts were exchanged, and it was a good example of aloha in action. Uh, you know, the aloha is uh, much more than a hello and a goodbye. It's really, it's really a uh, yeah, a spirit of, of togetherness. And bringing that to work is you know, kind of recognizing that in each other, amongst our team, amongst our clients bringing that sense into every business interaction we have, particularly in the challenging times, Um, you know, and growing up in Hawaii and seeing that um, in action there, you know, I bringing that into business was something I really wanted to apply. That's not something I put in the strategic plan on day one, but over time, particularly as I would go back, I'm like, huh, this, there is, there is really something here. Uh, to, lo- to aloha. And the way it's often phrased in Hawaii is to give aloha, right? That the governor is bound to give aloha. And that gives you a sense of the broader definition. Going back to, you know, a, an Obama reference, there was a speech he gave. No one really noticed it. He gave many great speeches. He did. And, and, but at one point near the end of his second term, he expressed 
this sense that that spirit of aloha like is something the world needs and is something that could ultimately be a gift Hawaii gives to the broader world. When you go there and, and open yourself up to that idea, you start to notice it everywhere. And, you know, I've, I've seen people, you know, come to Hawaii and really get it right. Like kind of incorporate that spirit, recognize it, start to give it back. You know, that's where Hawaii can be a a particularly transformative experience for people. The Obama speech, you know, it was like, he, he said this, I recall with like a sense of urgency, like, you know, like people, the world really needs this right now. I wish I could bridge the gap between Aloha, giving Aloha, Aloha in action in Hawaii. I wish I could find a way to bring that to the world. I think he tried. Um, I think it, that is kind of a fundamental principle of, of how he ran things. It was a little notice speech. I think it fell on a lot of deaf ears. Um, you know, but growing up there, I'm like, I know exactly what he's talking about. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are like, what, you know, it's, they, you know, it's, it's some, it's hard to convey until you've lived it to a degree. I am thankful for you to be on the podcast. Um, let's take this really positive note of Aloha and, um, end with such a great idea. Uh, thank you so much for spending your time with me today. It's really been nice talking to you. Absolutely. Thanks, Yvonne. And I really, you know, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. I listened back a few episodes. It's a great podcast. There are some really great ideas in past episodes. I've, I've started digging backwards and I'm going to keep digging. I might get all the way to episode one. Well, I'd love it. Thank you so yeah. much for saying those nice words. Absolutely. Hans Bjordal is the CEO and founder of Culture Foundry, a full-service, one-stop provider for all things digital in Seattle, Washington. You can find Hans on Twitter. His handle is at Hans Bjordal. And don't forget to listen to his podcast on conscious capitalism at thedecisionpodcast.com. You've been listening to the 107 Podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening. <laughs>